Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Andrew Leland. Andrew is an author, editor, podcaster, and educator, a multi-hyphenate, a renaissance man, if you will. <laughs> he has been an editor at The Believer since 2003. He's edited books for McSweeney's and Chronicle, and he hosted the organist for KRCW from 2013 to 2019. He's taught at Smith College, UMass Amherst, and the University of Missouri, and his absolutely superb memoir, The Country of the Blind, will be published on July 25th, this very week, because it's definitely July 21st when you're listening to this, and it's not May when we're recording. <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm great. How are you? I should say that yes. it's totally unnecessary, but... <laughs> I think I bruised my rib this week. Oh, no. And so I find myself disinclined to laugh. So oh, if I I'm seem so like a spe- like your jokes are falling flat, it's All probably right. just me not wanting to laugh. Okay. Well, no problem. Everyone listening at home, just laugh really yeah. hard to compensate for Andrew. <laughs> now, Andrew, what is your relationship to Little Women? In total candor, when you <laughs> first wrote to me about coming on this podcast, I thought you were talking about Little House on the Prairie <laughs> because... because in my defense, mm-hmm. there's a much stronger connection to blindness oh. in that book. Yeah. Because there's an actual blind character. <laughs> and, I, you know, in Wilder's mm-hmm. own personal life, the blind character was based on, I think it was her sister. And then I was like, oh, right. No, the different little, you know, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my defense also, it's <laughs> got a little in the title. It's children's it, literature yes. from the yeah. 19th century oriented around, you know, the female persuasion, <laughs> right. I guess. Right, right. Anyway, that gives you a glimpse into how (laughs) little I relate to little women. I guess the one thing that came up in addition to that mistake was that Mm -hmm. as a child, I think I was precociously ironic, which is Mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, not a good thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I think I was sarcastic earlier in my life than I should have been. And I think I ironically called my mom Marmy. I don't know. I think I like (laughs) picked up a copy of Little Women in a bookstore and just read enough to be like, oh, they call her mom, their mom Marmy. I'll just (laughs) make fun of my mom by calling her Marmy. So that, you know, beyond then watching the Greta Gerwig movie yeah, or something. Yeah. Like that's probably the length of it, which makes this all the more surreal to be speaking at length about Little Women, a book about <laughs> which I knew very little until you yeah. wrote to me, but I'm excited to be here and just chat it up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say I always want to get people here who are, I mean, true heads and people who are just coming into it for the first time to see what you know, perspectives they can bring. Honestly, like oh, besides just like knowing that your book was coming out the week that we had this episode, when you followed me on Twitter, I think it was last year, your profile picture is this really gnarly pen and ink portrait of uh, a 19th century blind person. And that got me really curious about the mm. lives of 19th century blindness, which you mm. talked about at some length in your book. Obviously, it's a broad history of blindness from a number of angles. We're talking about the assistive technology and how yes. it benefits everyone and all the stuff that we use today was created to support blind people, more or less. Yeah. So what is the story behind your profile picture? I mean, I have to know. You know, I was, I feel I'm a little bit of a acid casualty. And I, uh-huh. this, I was doing research well before I knew I was writing a book. <laughs> I taught a class at Smith. I was sort of adjuncted there on and mm-hmm. off. And I got to teach a class called The Literature of Blindness. Oh, okay. And it must have been researching the syllabus for that. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a lot of a lot, you know, so so like blind education for the blind begins in Enlightenment France, like mm-hmm. in the 18th century. And then by the 19th century in the US and in Europe, that's sort of the beginning of like more 
institutionalized blind education, like the first mm-hmm. schools have sort of proven themselves and now it's spreading. And I think, you know, in addition to that spread of education, there also spreads an interest in blind memoirs. So there's this huge profusion of blind memoirs. I, if I'm remembering correctly, that Twitter avatar, which I just screenshot, because <laughs> yeah. I just, there's this weird convention in 19th century portraits mm-hmm. of blind people where often the eyes are covered. Ooh. So there's a Helen Keller and her kind of predecessor, Laura Bridgman, mm-hmm. they would often wear ribbons around their eyes. But this okay. dude that I found has these <laughs> They're not quite glasses, but they're these weird little cups over his yeah. eyes. That it's almost like swim speedo goggles. goggles. Yeah, <laughs> like nineteenth century speedos. Anyway, I think he might have been an actor. But, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think I really wish I had written down who he was because <laughs> no. I remember being struck by how awesome this guy was. And yeah. I was like, he's my profile pic. But that's about the best I can do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that because that has been gnawing at me since I saw it. So <laughs> me I'm, too. I'm yeah, glad I to have I answers. Yeah. yeah. And so now, which March sister are you? And keep in mind, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. Oh, okay. I did not see this question coming, okay. so I don't have a prepared answer. So I'm just <laughs> going to give you my off the dome. All you right. Know, this will be the much much more honest answer. Which one am I? I mean, so <laughs> you mentioned disability was in in the book somehow, you know, when I was sort of trying to regroup me, like, uh-huh. hey, we're not talking about Little House on the Prairie. You know, so, and also, I read the book very quickly, so I'm going to mess up their names. So Beth is the one who is most sickly, right? Yes. So in the spoiler book, alert. yes. Spoiler yeah, alert kicks it. Doesn't make it. <laughs> yeah. In real you don't life. Have spoilers in this podcast, right? No, I mean, well, there may be people who are reading it for the first time or reading along with us, but I think Beth dying has been pretty well spoiled. So Beth is based on the real life Elizabeth Alcott, who did pass away. Some people read Beth through a disability lens. That's something that's coming up more and more. The real life Meg, Anna Alcott, was partially deaf. So that's something that also... But that's nowhere in the book. Well, it's very subtextual. Mm. There, There are scenes where... Meg is really like overwhelmed by loud noises or people talking or is uncomfortable in party settings. And oh, interesting. my friend Eliana Dobris, who is an audiologist, is like, I in that aspect of Meg, I see a lot of my own experience of hearing is just so much more effort for me. So I often mm. get overwhelmed in group settings where people are noisy. So that's the disability overview of the March sisters. We've also talked about a neurodivergent Joe or whatnot, mm. but yeah. Yeah. I mean, as when I say that, just I feel some degree of obligation as like somebody who just wrote a disability memoir to be like, gotta yeah. have solidarity with Beth. But the reality <laughs> is she's just so pathetic and lacks agency, Yeah, you know, which is not surprising. I mean, you know, and also thinking about disability is complicated because mm-hmm. disability like blindness is very different from what happens to her? What's wrong with her? Is it ever named or is she, she just most sickly? Yeah. So she she comes down with scarlet fever in the first half of right. the book. Right. And in the second half of the book has sort of a, a relapse or her heart is weakened. Mm-hmm. It's very ambiguous. What we're finding in this second half of the book is that because the book is so semi-autobiographical, right? All the events that are chronicled in this part of the book, Meg getting married, Amy going off to Europe, by this point in the real Alcott's life, Elizabeth had passed away. So she's this spectral presence in the second Mm. half of the book. She's either barely in the scenes or she's popping up just to say, by the way, I'm going to die soon. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's the 19th century version of long COVID. Like she just, nobody's masking. She just has to be in her apartment forever and nobody remembers her. Not You know, not to... I'm not making light <laughs> no, no, of that no. at all. It's extremely depressing yeah. reality. But so, that, so for that reason, I'm not a bet. No. I would say it feels played out, even though mm-hmm. I don't know if this is played out. But I'm Joe. I, yeah. You know, especially in light of this <laughs> chapter, just wrestling with what it means to be a writer, which is something I've yeah, done plenty yeah. of, and just ambiguously frolicking around the world, mm-hmm. trying to 
I don't even know what I'm yeah. saying, but yeah, let's go with Joe. I, yeah. Team Joe. I was going to, I think from just from having read your memoir, I get Joe vibes for sure. And oh, thank you. I guess the question of not just how to be a writer, but how to write morally. Mm, I yes. disagree with Professor Bayer's judgment in that area in this chapter. Mm. But before we get too much into that, Andrew, could you please recap chapter 34, Friend? Sure. I thought you were calling me Friend. Oh, for no. But the title of the chapter, <laughs> just my friend, friend Peyton, is Friend. <laughs> Yeah, and I mentioned already that I'm an acid casualty, so forgive me. You know, I missed mm-hmm. that. The, I forgot about scarlet fever yeah. just now. It's a disaster. <laughs> so I'm just okay. going to do my gonzo bizarro recap here. All right. So the chapter's called Friend because it <laughs> centers around Joe's new friendship that develops with, you pronounce it bear? Bear is, yeah. Yeah, bushy beard. I read this book with a screen reader, like a robot, sexy robot reading it at 100 (laughs) miles an hour. But it did a pretty good job. I think it said bear. Even though it's spelled bananas Lee, H, whatever. (laughs) Does he have a bushy beard? I kind of picture it looking like Nietzsche, kind of. Yeah. Like a Nietzschean dude from Germany who. Paunchy old guy. He's a tutor. He's got all these kids. Mm -hmm. His English is not great. Mm -hmm. And in the text, he's often like, what is the deal (laughs) over thunder? You know, and just has these strange mistranslated locutions, including spellings where he's just like, I love muesli with you. (laughs) Kind of a Borat figure, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. And so the chapter actually starts out with Joe going to this weekly volcano, a sensationalist (laughs) rag that she is publishing her, her sensationalist stories in to make a living and to, you know, support her family. And so this chapter is sort of in two parts, I guess. There's the scene with Mr. Dashwood, who I, in a thunderstruck moment, recalled was a name of the family from Sense and Sensibility. Oh, yeah, yeah. Feels intentional. And later in the chapter kind of pays off that reference, I think. But he's this very dissolute, not dissolute, but just cigar chomping, literally (laughs) cigar chomping, mean editor who's, you know, sees right through her ruse about her not being Mm -hmm. the author of the stories that she's submitting, but then, you know, is sort of supportive. And then there's a kind of interesting dichotomy in the chapter where there's the scene at the, which is just a great name for a literary mm-hmm. magazine, the Weekly Volcano. So it's on the nose, but in the best possible yes. way for like an on the nose subject, it's like so good. the frothy explosions <laughs> that come out of the Weekly Volcano every week. But then there's this other scene where she goes to this very high minded lecture mm-hmm. with Bear, and it's interesting because it kind of juxtaposes it. I think initially you think it's going to be like a high low thing where it's mm-hmm. there's her sensationalist garbage that she's publishing at the <laughs> Weekly Volcano, and then. Goethe and Hegel and Kant at the <laughs> lecture circuit. But in fact, when she's there with Bear, and she has this revelation that they're sort of just as frivolous. I mean, she doesn't make the comparison explicitly, but I think as the reader, you're meant to think, oh, yeah, these people aren't any better. Mm-hmm. The high-minded ivory tower groves of academe <laughs> is just as as dissolute in a way. Yeah. And Bear emerges as the sort of guiding light, you know, between the two you know, the Scylla and Charybdis of sensationalist yeah. liter- weekly publishing and fartsy, pretentious German idealists as, mm-hmm. you know, not about intellect, not about, you know, there's this whole thing about religion and the philosophers arguing about the existence of God. And there's this sort of religious, but also very spiritual and still quite literary mm-hmm. sense of Bayer as like offering Joe a model forward, to, you know, read Schiller and, yes. you know, and have moral ideas undergirding her writing. And so then there's a dramatic scene where he sort of convinces her to, I mean, there's a great, it's great where she, he's like wearing a little folded paper cap. Yeah. That he doesn't realize he's still wearing that one of the kids has put on his head and then she's smirking and tittering. And he's like, why have for you to snicker at mine self? And then she's like, you're wearing this little folded hat. And then mm-hmm. it turns out to be a, 
you know, not a page from the Weekly Volcano, although Joe thinks it is, but, you know, mm-hmm. a page from a sensationalist magazine. This with a really great, I love that line where it's like, what's printed on the page? It's like, a lunatic, a serpent, a <laughs> bucket of poison. I, I don't remember what it is. But yeah. This amazing amalgam of horrible things. And then, you know, he basically, it gives Bear, you know, he knows exactly what he's talking about. It's sort of unspoken that, Joe, don't be involved in this, you know. They, he compares it to the production of whiskey. Like, even though people buy whiskey, it doesn't mean you should become a distiller and spread yeah. dissolution further in the world. And so then she dramatically throws all of her writing into the fire and, like, decides to follow Bear's righteous path. And then at the end, there's the little, you know, turn of the screw of the plot where mm-hmm. they kind of miss cross paths and confessing love for each other. And he misinterprets her excitement for him to visit as she's still in love with Lori and, you know. And then he bids her farewell and their love yes. brews ever stronger. Yeah. So, and what's fascinating and struck me about the ending reading this chapter is that it's not immediately obvious that Joe isn't going to wind up with Lori, even at this very late hour. Mm-hmm. I could mm-hmm. certainly see this is a one and done thing. We leave this sad old man behind and then we go back to Concord and Joe and Lori have their big reunion. She's very, she's really leading the reader on here. <laughs> I think so. And also, it's not, I think one of the reasons for that is that it's not entirely clear that Bayer is the man. No. He's certainly held up as this instructive yeah. force that it's interesting, just the question of moral morality in literature, because I feel like Alcott is not, the book itself is full of these morally didactic moments. Yeah. But then there are moments when Joe herself in this chapter decides, okay, I'm going to follow Bear and I'm going to write this very di- basically what what amounts to an yeah. essay like that doesn't sell and alka has this sort of editorializing where she's like that's not really the way to go either joe right. you know, it's very, it's yeah, very yeah. metafictional moment i think mm-hmm. where i could sort of see alka's own struggle there where it's like i don't yeah. want to write literary whiskey that's going to poison mm-hmm. the hearts of the minds of the children but also i can't just write sermons and so <laughs> yep. there's a, a kind of threading of the needle that's yeah. happening there that i think complicates her relationship with bear because it's like is he which one is he exactly and yeah. we don't know that at this point yet. no i appreciate as much as i hate this chapter it's interesting that she takes bear's advice throws her writing into the fire and then tries <laughs> to follow his advice and finds that it's bad advice <laughs> yeah totally yeah so she winds up at the end not writing at all it's an upsetting place to leave her i'll read some of my notes on the chapter just to give mm. you an idea hate it thanks i hate bear <laughs> I like effing hate bear. I hate him. I hate bear. <laughs> Destroying Joe's yeah. intellectual curiosity. Actually, I just hate this whole, this is in caps. I just hate this whole section of the book, period. Okay, well, LOL. I just truly hate bear. Oh, F you bear. Are you effing serious? It, it just keeps, I, <laughs> I was, I was this just, is a moment where because my annotations, of my rib, I, yeah. I just have to verbally express that yes. what happened was funny just okay. now, but I That's cannot a, chuckle. Yeah, I really, I struggle a lot with, the points being made here about the morality of writing and the morality of what Joe is writing. I think, obviously, this is a commentary on what Alcott had to do to kind of get ahead in her own career and the success that mm-hmm. she did find as an, a pseudonymous author of this sensation fiction. Which you ha- mm-hmm. If you haven't read any of it, it was even just relatively recently that they just uncovered a big stash of never previously identified as Alcott sensation fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's I've read a lot of it, and a lot of it is really out there. There's one scene where a bunch of young people do hashish, spelt with Mm. two E's, because it's the 19th century, and (laughs) a boy and a girl go out on a boat ride, and 
they're both on hashish, and the boy is so overcome with lust from the hashish that he lunges at the woman, and then they almost shipwreck. And it's, wow. know, so it's it gets. We have ghosts, we have hauntings, we have stabbings hmm. and murders and adultery, and she loved a wicked heroine scheming after a fortune. So. Hmm. But, you know, there was an extent to which this was being done for money. This was not truly what she wanted to be writing. But then Little Women wasn't either. When she was mm. asked to write a girl's book, she said, I never liked girls. I don't want to do it. She refused the assignment initially and had to be asked again and then wrote Little Women. So it's what we see here with her trying to decide between these two roads and finding that nothing suits her is really the dilemma that she was on in her mm. own life. I love, by the way, I think one of my favorite lines in this chapter yeah. and hearing you describe the sort of real life Alcott yeah. having this literary struggle is the scandalizing the librarians by asking them for information yes. on poison <laughs> because it just feels real to me. And it's also just delightful to imagine a 19th century librarian being like, why do you want a third book on how to poison people? <laughs> yeah, But it makes me wonder your mm-hmm. observations about Alcott's sensational writing. What would it does it exist? Yeah. The ideal Alcott novel, if it's not her sensationalist writing, and it's not Little Women, did yeah. she end up? Did she ever get a chance to write it, or what do you think that book is? So I know that the novel of her heart was this book, Moods, which is previously in in an earlier chapter where Joe publishes her first novel, and it receives a really lukewarm, mixed reception. That was kind mm. of her autobiography of Moods, which you know mm. she wrote this. She was very passionate about it. It's essentially a love triangle story about a woman who marries a man and finds that she doesn't really love him, and she'd rather be with another man. And it was her sort of reflection almost on her parents' marriage and the struggles that she'd seen her mother go through. And it was a cautionary tale about entering into marriage too quickly without consideration. So she submits it, it gets a publication offer, but they ask her to cut a bunch of it and change a bunch of things. And then it gets this mixed reaction and she's unhappy because she's like, this isn't my original vision for the book anyway. She later, after her literary success, revised it and put it out again. But I've read it and I just, I don't, it doesn't ever rise to the level of Little Women for me, except in the scene, the wedding scene, which is fascinating because this young woman is, she moves through her wedding day as if she is disassociated. Hmm. She's looking at herself from outside of her body. She's not feeling things. Phys- so that's that's very interesting for me about getting an Alcott's head, but hmm. moods would probably be it. It never Mm. found a wide audience, unfortunately. It's that classic thing of the thing that she was best known for is not the thing that she cared about writing at all. Yeah, probably not an uncommon story. Also, Moods is just a groovy title. I feel like that's like very contemporary. I could totally see going to (laughs) Books Are Magic in Brooklyn and being like, oh, Moods? That looks cool. I'll pick that up. And it's got a floral cover, you know rotted floral cover is what I'm envisioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was also largely, the title is a reference to a girl who, is, the central character is one kind of having depressed, what we might call manic depressive episodes. There's a lot of mm. that in there. So she envisioned this really complex novel about mental health and the perils of marrying when you don't actually have the desire to marry someone, and it just mm. kind of got sliced up. <laughs> There's mm. an image in that chapter of Joe butchering her firstborn baby, which recurs oh, in God. this chapter when Dashwood asks if he can publish the story, and she's like, it's like asking me to cut the legs off my baby, but all right. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It just sort of floats by that extremely yeah. violent image. <laughs> 
and we get this violent image and Joe kind of shrugs and says, well, all right, which is, I think that's a commentary on how Joe would feel about motherhood. And very much in contrast mm. to kind of the closing image of Joe with this child on her lap and Mr. Yeah. Bear looking at her longingly. I want to go back, though, to what you were saying about how she's freaking out the librarians by asking about poison. That whole section of the chapter, it really put me in mind of the modern debate over women who enjoy true crime. I don't know if mm. this is something that you're tracking at all, but it seems like Joe is really taking delight. She's reading the crime pages of the paper. She's going in yeah. to the library and looking up poisons. She's kind of getting fascinated in this you know, modern murderino sense, yeah. which is a very controversial topic even today of people saying hmm. it's completely immoral to enjoy true crime. Nobody should listen to my favorite murder. That's the context that I was reading it in and thinking about the degree to which even if those people have a point, how much of this is just about policing women's interests and saying that it's inappropriate for women to be into anything dark or scary? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think my feeling reading this chapter, <laughs> and especially those parts, and just thinking about the moral obligations of being a writer, I think that I have probably a dangerously relativist attitude about this, which is <laughs> yeah. kind of that. It's kind of a, a similar sentiment to saying everyone has a story to tell or anybody, you know, can there any subject in the past when <laughs> I've taught writing classes, you know, I feel like I would never tell somebody that a subject wasn't interesting because I feel yeah, like yeah. it's just you burrow deep enough and any subject becomes interesting. And I think that extends to subjects that we would find taboo or <laughs> that we should avoid, you know, and I think obviously there are ways of talking about different subjects that can be problematic. And so I suppose there's a, I identify with some validity of the critique mm -hmm. of true crime in that if there's genuine human suffering connected to systemic mm. injustices, and then you're just consuming it as light entertainment without any consideration. Yeah. I think in some, especially like in high volume, you know, when there's just <laughs> giant churning yeah. volcano of it barfing volcano. out into the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe there's a problem there. But yeah, I think on a case by case basis, I think it just comes down to, you know, there's so much crime writing or mm -hmm. yeah, there's so much crime writing and crime fiction or just crime media <laughs> that does capture the pleasures of that suspense and the style yeah. of that she uses the word spice in this chapter yes. very antecedent to today's spicy vibe <laughs> but yeah i don't see i think that all things being equal and all things are equal in that way any subject like yeah. that is fair game and fodder for an interesting inquiry. Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I especially take issue with, you know, anyone who you said you would never tell a student that writing a subject isn't interesting. But I think the thing that I find people bumping up more and more against is this even moral to write about? Do we have the right to cover this or think about this or be interested in this? Yeah. I think Bear specifically uses the word harm in this chapter, like doing harm, mm. which is very modern <laughs> lit talk yeah. language talking about how a book could be harmful or do harm harm. And it strikes, his monologue here strikes me as like incredibly puritanical. And as much as Joe listens and throws her work into the fire, she then tries to follow his advice, write the puritanical children's stories and finds mm -hmm. that they're not interesting and no one's going to buy them. She says, I can't bear to have my naughty boys eaten by bears. <laughs> you mm. know, I, I want to have some room for moral complexity and revel in naughtiness, which is not up to Professor Bear's standards, which makes me worried about their eventual marriage, but we're getting ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment in there mm -hmm. where when Joe makes the decision to mm -hmm. stop writing and it's kind of, I don't have the line in front mm -hmm. of me, but it's something like, write what you know, and I don't mm -hmm. know anything. So I'm going to wait. And that's so sad. I, I share your yeah. dismay at that for the obvious reason mm -hmm. of just her being silenced mm -hmm. by this bushy bearded <laughs> bozo. But also, 
I just think writing what you know can include going to the library and reading a lot about poison, and then you know about poison, and you can write something interesting about poison. And I have to say, when I was selling this memoir, Mm -hmm. you know, I was meeting with editors, and there was Mm -hmm. one editor, you know, before I sold the book, who said Mm -hmm. to me, we would never buy this book if it wasn't by a blind writer, you know, which is on the one hand, the book wouldn't exist if it wasn't by a blind writer, because it's so Mm -hmm. much about my experience of blindness. But also, as you pointed out, a lot of my book is about history and hanging out with blind people and writing about the politics and culture of blindness today. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I'm definitely of two minds about this because on the one hand, I was like, cool, that will make it easier to sell my book. I'm glad to harness the energy of 20, you know, it was 2019, I guess, but harness Mm -hmm. the contemporary energy of (laughs) fear of cancellation. And sure, (laughs) only let the blind journalists write about the culture of blindness. Uh, But then on the other hand, I do think that it's legit. Not it would be immoral for a sighted writer to write about blindness, but it does give me a different perspective. But I've thought about this because I read a lot of books about blindness by sighted writers, mm-hmm. and they're not bad because they're by sighted writers, but they, a lot of them do subscribe to, as our friend Bear would say, like harmful <laughs> yeah. attitudes about blindness, which are super deeply ingrained and ingrained mm-hmm. in this chapter, which we can get to later if you want. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I just, that, I think that's all in there too. Yeah. I mean, you bring up such an interesting point about who has the right to write which stories. And they're really, you touched on something that's really depressing, which is that in writing what you know, Joe is actively expanding what she knows. She's having new experiences and going to new places and reading new books and learning new things and expanding her base of knowledge. And the fact that she's writing what you know doesn't mean that you have to stop knowing things, right? And limit yourself. And then getting into the modern kind of hashtag own voices debate, Mm -hmm. right? Which was specifically designed, it was, the hashtag was created by this autistic author, Corinne Doivis. I hope I'm pronouncing that surname right to advocate for autistic authors because there's this glut of books about autism by parents of autistic people or caregivers of mm-hmm. autistic people that you know can't help but kind of infantilize autistic people. So it was a specific effort to uplift autistic voices. And I think we run into all kinds of problems when we try to just slap it into other contexts where it doesn't really belong. Most notably, demanding own voices of queer people kind of forces people out of the closet, (laughs) which is, Mm. or own voices of people with mental illness. You're maybe asking people to disclose trauma or conditions that could be stigmatizing. And I think specifically with the issue of disability, something you talk about in your book is the overwhelming economic and professional disadvantages that disabled people have to face and the attitudes of many employers about how would a blind person do this extremely basic function, right? Yes, right. And so, you know, we both published books. It's not an easy process. It's not a, an inexpensive process, right? It's something. So when you put the burden of books with disabled characters must be written by disabled people, you're sort of, it's okay, but in order to get the, how are you getting the disabled authors there? Are you funding fellowships for disabled authors? Are you giving, are you advocating against these absurd, you know, the monthly minimum of what disabled people can keep in savings, right? How are you helping disabled people, sorry, get published? And then the answer is kind of crickets. And then we have no disabled characters and YA, at least, which is my neck of the woods. Mm. Not no disabled characters, but notably fewer compared to other areas where representation has become much more diverse. So that's a real bugbear of mine. But, you know, I but and I agree, we've all read those books or seen those movies where they just get the basic details of disability flagrantly wrong. Right. I was just... Or you have a Beth who just sort of... Right. You know, yeah, all the stereotypes of disability rep- yeah. re- representation. Yeah. 
it's like a shot list. We could just right. go down. You know, for me, I think you can, I kind of want to try to hold both ideas at yeah. once. Like you say, of course, we need more disabled authors <laughs> and thinking about supporting them in, in real ways, like fellowships <laughs> make sense. But I think <laughs> even though I want that, I resist the idea of a sort of ideological doctrine that states that, you know, one may not write about this if yeah. that's not your explicit lived experience. And there's an interesting, to get back to this chapter, there's kind of an interesting thing that happens where very quickly, the moral dissipation that mm-hmm. we worry about, or that a moralist, mm-hmm. a literary moralist would worry about yeah. in readers infects her as a writer, which yeah. I think is part of what yeah. you and I are both struggling with. Because it's <laughs> if anyone should be able to navigate those waters, it's the writer, because mm-hmm. you're the one in the driver's seat, you're mm-hmm. the one learning. And like another thing, not yeah. to throw these anonymous editors under the bus, but another thing mm-hmm. that I heard when I was trying to sell my book was, well, you know, Andrew, there's a lot of things that people haven't heard about in this book. You know, I think it was <laughs> like marketing kind of conversation, right? And I was right. like, you don't want to talk so much about 18th century blind <laughs> education because that's, we don't know about that. Just cut to Braille and whatever. <laughs> and I was just like, don't we read books in order to yeah, learn things we've never heard about? What? <laughs> but I think that's an attitude that I mean, obviously, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of people who are trying to sell books have because you want to offer something that is recognizable to someone mm-hmm. that then they think, oh, yeah, I remember that thing that reminds me of a thing I already know about that is comfortable and familiar and I want more of it, mm-hmm. which for my money, you know, certainly as a human being, I am susceptible to that. Oh, yeah. When I ate that flavor of Doritos, I felt happy. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely going to go for more of those. But there's another part of me that's, you know, I'm yeah. going to challenge myself a little bit here and yeah. try to go to some weird murky places that I don't understand. You do. Yeah. And you do a really good job of navigating these moral gray areas, even within the blind community between the two kind of national blindness organizations and their very different approaches to Hmm. blind politics and advocating for blind people. It's people aren't monoliths and we need to hear it. We need to have all kinds of (laughs) books, maybe even including from people outside of the community so that we can challenge ourselves and learn new perspectives and let our perspectives evolve, I think. I, well, I think that's, there is, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think yeah. there is just like such piety around mm-hmm. disability. You know, I mean, there's the negative yeah. side of it too, which is discrimination and bias and you know, yeah. these sort of abysmally low expectations. But another problem I think is the piety. And I think if anything, that was my superpower as somebody, mm-hmm. you know, with a disability, writing about disability mm-hmm. is that I didn't have to feel like I had to yeah. present every blind person I met as a Beth, right? Or not yeah. Beth. What's her, yeah, no Beth, Beth. Beth right? Beth. I could be like, this This person is a racist, misogynist, homophobe, <laughs> and blind yeah. too, sure. But that mm-hmm. other stuff is going on as well. Yeah. You know, and that that was, I think, probably that ambiguity mm-hmm. that you're identifying was the most exciting part yeah. for me. Because it felt, that's what felt genuinely new. I felt like I was mm-hmm. blazing some new paths. People were, have been afraid, I think, to really, I mean, there's been reporting on all kinds of scandals within the blind community. It's yeah, not like I'm the yeah, first person yeah. to do it. But just in this sort of larger nonfiction narrative, I haven't encountered anything that really encapsulated those sort of yeah. sticky, sticky ambiguities that exist within, I think, every disabled community and if literally, yeah. obviously every community period, it's yeah. just like human experience. Yeah. So I think we're on the same page here as far as the there are limitations to the own voices approach. We need to be able to have all kinds of we shouldn't try to be so pious when we are representing any kinds of marginalized people. At the same time, it's undeniable that people can be really fucked up about disability <laughs> in fiction. <laughs> yes. Even in very progressive-minded creative work. I'm sorry to even bring this up, but I was watching, I have a real 
I, I can't do horror movies, so I finally mm. brought myself to watch Get Out years mm-hmm. after holding onto the, you know, the, like my armrest. Yeah. Watching through my eyes at points, but, you know, watching through my fingers at points. But I didn't realize for as much as I'd heard, I went in completely spoiled. For as much as I'd heard about that movie, nobody told me or mentioned that the man who is trying to body snatch the protagonist of the film is a blind man who's like, I want yeah. your eyes. And I'm like, what? Are you fucking kidding me, Jordan Peele? You could have your allegory of white people trying to occupy blackness and take possession of blackness without putting that on a blind person what why was that necessary why was that thought of i that's just the most recent example in my mind but yeah i I need to rewatch that movie i think i think i saw it before i had started obsessively thinking about blindness in every aspect but no it's so retrograde sorry go on well, no, I'm just my memory of it. The blindness is interesting among disabilities and particularly in terms of how it gets represented in media or books or in art because it is this sort of very elemental idea in for people. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and you see it all over little women because it's written in English and English yeah. it's just embedded in the language where mm-hmm. even in this chapter yep. like the whole passage where he yeah. she wears his eyeglasses yeah let me joe wears bears eyeglasses i'll yeah. read that for us because i i think that's what we're getting to here and it feels in germane to what we're talking about being a little short-sighted mr bear sometimes used eyeglasses and joe had tried them once smiling to see how they magnified the fine print of her book which i'll pause that kind of suggests that maybe joe needs glasses herself but let's keep going <laughs> now she seemed to have got on the professor's mental or moral spectacles also for the faults of those poor stories glared at her dreadfully and filled her with dismay they are trash and will soon be worse than trash if i go on for each is more sensational than the last i've gone blindly on hurting myself and other people for the sake of money i know it so and then she, when she throws her stories into the fire she watched them whisk away a little black cinder with fiery eyes. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of eye imagery, glasses imagery, yeah. blindness imagery. A lot of being blind is immoral. Yeah. By me writing, I have been blind. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's blindness <laughs> yeah. as ignorance and blindness as moral folly. Mm-hmm. And it's it goes back to the you know beginning of Western civilization, really. Yeah. You know, you see it in... You know, I mean, the most Mm -hmm. famous example, I guess, would be Oedipus, right? You know, he (laughs) sleeps with his mother, kills Mm -hmm. his father, and then gouges his eyes out uh, as this sort of symbol Mm -hmm. of his debasement. And the Bible is full of Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, the language itself. And, you know, there's the positive version of it, which is which I think creates the shadow that blindness falls into, right? There's like enlightenment, speculation, every word. There's a great book by Martin Jay Mm -hmm. called Downcast Eyes. The subtitle is The Denigration of vision in Mm -hmm. French thought. And it's just all these French philosophers. He coined this word that's wonderful called ocular centricism or ocular centrism, basically putting vision at the center of knowledge. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like enlightenment is the core idea there. And that's what you see here, right? Bear is enlightening Joe with, Mm -hmm. you know, she puts on his glasses and then suddenly the light, you know, can reach her fading eyes. And, you Mm -hmm. know, and I don't have a problem with with that. I think people sometimes get awkward around blind people. Yeah. I mean, did you see that movie? I mean, did you sit in a chair whilst the movie played? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, and I, that's just, a hor- mm-hmm. don't ever do that if no. you're listening to this. Just say, yeah, oh, I saw him yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yes, blind people can see their friends, mm-hmm. even if they have no light perception. And I, I think a lot of blind, some blind people, I can't speak for all blind people. Most blind people I know are fine with that. And they say, hold on, let me see that. And then they'll mm-hmm. grab it with their hands and they're seeing it with their fingers. And that's mm-hmm. not, you know, you can think that's holy and cool, or you can just yep. be like, right, that's how they engage with the world. Mm-hmm. 
the flip side of it though where you say you know he blindly mm-hmm. did you know blind as any kind of synonym for yeah. ignorance that's damaging and you know and yeah. because i think you know and i have started to feel this as i've gradually felt more and more comfortable identifying as blind because for me it's this super gradual process mm-hmm. where i'm kind of like am i blind yet is mm-hmm. it soup yet but as i have kind of made peace with my blindness and as it's increased the idea of doing something blindly being mm-hmm. being anything negative yeah. is hurtful and not only is it hurtful but the more i learn about blindness and the more i inhabit it yeah. the more i realize that it's just wrong yeah i do things <laughs> blindly all the time and mm-hmm. by blindly i mean skillfully inquisitively yep. creatively and so to do something blindly is hardly to do it ignorantly it's to no. do it with passion and creativity and joy yeah your book gets so much into the, the history of blind innovation and blind science and blind technology which fuels a ton of just the technology that we use every day screen readers originated as tools for the blind. You talk about kind of the predecessors to the Apple computer, which were these phone hack boxes predominantly used by blind people to hack into phone lines and chat with people all over the country, which led to the creation of computer networks. You really get into kind of the lore of the slanted curb, right? Yeah, like, right, the curb cut. Yeah. yeah. So yes, doing things as a blind person, it requires skillfully, as you said, innovatively, <laughs> thinking ahead, yeah. adaptively, which is very much not what Joe is saying here at all. And I swear, <laughs> I found this out well after I had invited you to the podcast. I was getting to the end of her collected letters. She's writing a letter to her publisher. She's in the last year of her life. She's very ill. And he's like, where am I? You know, you're not in your deadlines. Where are the pages? She suffered from mercury poisoning. This was the era where she got fever in a Civil War hospital, and they were like, time to drink mercury. And that was... <laughs> mm. Right. And so she dealt with several disabilities throughout her life. And especially toward the end of her life, it was just very hard for her to go about her business. Right. So, but in this letter that she wrote to her publisher in August of 1887, she says, I find if I work without my glasses, my head is not so soon tired. So I scribble away, quote unquote, going it blind, so to speak. And my manuscript Mm. is worse than ever, but the amiable typesetters seem to make out. And so I will continue to scroll and get done. So it's. I have read Alcott biographies. I've been in this a while. And the fact that Alcott did experience a degree of vision loss and scholars remark on how notably shorter her writing got Mm. in these years and how much, you know, her handwriting became less neat and more difficult to decipher. Her journal entries were sometimes only a couple words at a time. And she's saying this has something to do with my vision loss. And I've never heard her characterized as someone who had vision loss. It just, That's fascinating. Yeah. I love that in particular because it gets at this idea of what a blind writing style might be. Right. Is there, you know, and I think mm-hmm. every writer is affected by mm-hmm. so much more than, you know, some platonic intellect yeah. that is the engine of their creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, James Joyce is a famous example where this might be apocryphal, but he had really bad eye problems later mm-hmm. in his life. And Samuel Beckett was an amanuensis of his where he would take dictation. And then there's this great story in in his biography where somebody knocks on the door and Joyce says, come in. And then later Beckett is reading the pages back to him. And then Joyce says, what's that come in? And then Beckett's like, yes, you said that. And then he says, let it stand. This is Finnegan's way. You know, which may or may not be apocryphal, but it's still a wonderful sense of how (laughs) one's environment and one's disability or just not even disability, but just one's physical life is present on the page. No matter yeah, what. Completely. But yeah, how wild that that Alcott is no no exception. Yeah, and I want to emphasize, this was 1887 that she was writing this. She passed away in 1888. Little Woman was 1868. So this didn't mm-hmm. necessarily inform her experience or the way that she writes about blindness here, but it did 
touch her life. And it's something that scholars have remarked on is like, she wrote less, the writing was shorter. And to the very end, she was writing, she was making it work for herself. She was mm. doing everything she could, like diet, exercise, lifestyle wise, to ensure that she could still get at least an hour a day of reading or writing in, even wow. if it made her head hurt. You know, she was like, she was already like, adapting and trying all these different things to manage her life as a disabled person, essentially. I have to yeah. say that yesterday, a friend of mine who, this is like the common refrain <laughs> where I always preface things by being like a friend of yeah, mine yeah. who's extremely intelligent <laughs> said something that was extremely ignorant. <laughs> I'm not going to name them, yeah. but it's just a common thing, I think. Mm-hmm. I think if you're ever in a community that is you know, outside the mainstream, mm-hmm. I think it's just a common experience where people are like, what's that about? Yeah. But they were like, hey, I know that probably as a visually impaired person, you prefer I keep my emails really short. <laughs> is there anything else that's a good kind of, and they were purely just trying to be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, I just wrote a 400 page book. Why (laughs) would I not be able to handle a prolix email, you know? So I, and I wanted to mention that just because Mm -hmm. Alcott's, you know, without Mm -hmm. any assistive technology to use, I could imagine short sentences are better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was writing my book, I became a screen reader user. So I started out just looking at my computer, normal style. And then, you know, the, the font, I would sort of play with making it larger and larger, then inverting the colors on my computer. Yeah. And then eventually at a certain point, I was just like, I think this is going to be easier to do orally. And yeah. it felt like a terrifying cliff that I was going to go off of. And then very quickly I adapted and mm-hmm. I, you know, there was no need for short sentences and I could just, mm-hmm. it actually made me so much faster. And I think there's a really sad reality of yeah. a lot of blind people who don't find the resources or don't mm-hmm. learn the skills, they do end up with that sense that, okay, well, I guess I can't write long sentences anymore, right? Yeah, or I guess I can yeah. only, you know, do whatever I can see with the giant marker on the page and fit four words to the page. And one of the things that I've learned for myself and just in researching blindness is that mm-hmm. you don't have to make those compromises and that, that there are really interesting tools, but it kind of takes yeah. a leap of faith a little bit to let go of vision, which is just such mm-hmm. a dominating force, it, not only in this sort of cultural way we've been talking yeah, about, yeah. but just personally, mm-hmm. if you grew up with it, you hold on mm-hmm. until the very last photon, as one of yeah. my mentors put it. Yeah. That's something you write about really eloquently in your book is the process of just, wait, actually, some of this adaptive technology is better and easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is improving yeah. my life. And what I take to mean, there was a reference in this introduction to the selected letters to the pitiful, almost monosyllabic jottings of her last years. She mm. wrote a novel <laughs> in 1886. She wrote Joe's Boys and published Joe's Boys two years before she died. She was making it work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. It's pitiful only in the sense of a diminished yeah. you know, person. Uh, the way that disability makes one seem pitiful, yeah. even if the lived experience of it is that you're busting right. out, banging out Joe's Boys and crushing. Exactly. And this specifically was a reference to her journals, which were always sort of on the shorter end for personal reference to keep track of dates and times and when things Mm. happened. And, you know, these very short kind of later year journal entries are like, you know, I felt okay today. I had a headache. I did some reading. I was able to take a walk before my joint pain got too bad. (laughs) I mean, God bless the people who were, this needs to be completely unabridged. We get some pretty gnarly details of her bowel movements. She wants us to, well, she's journaling about that. (laughs) But the, these, it's a different kind yeah. of sensationalist literature. Exactly. <laughs> Which is to say that these pitiful jottings, they're that way on purpose. This is not for an audience. They're for her own reference. And I don't know. I mean, it's also complicated. I just think I'm glad that I've had you here to kind of wrestle with some of it and that we coincidentally picked this chapter that had this really you know, intense blindness metaphor kind of swirling around in this bigger moral discussion, which is also 
nicely helped us, you know, it's kept this episode from becoming a one hour long anti-Professor Bear hate rant, which I'm sure it would have been. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, honestly, like reading this book, <laughs> I was more irritated by the two anti-Semitic comments that I yeah. found than Oof. I was about any ableism I might have no. tried to identify. Like the stuff about wearing <laughs> Bear's eyeglasses, that seems like very garden variety to me. And basic, if you're thinking about knowledge as mm -hmm. synonymous with vision. It's a normal metaphor to make. Yeah. And like blindly, yeah, it's not great, but mm -hmm. everybody does it. And there's worse things. But then when it's just like, then the sniveling Jew, <laughs> you know, this later <laughs> chapter, I was like, whoa, what? The, hey. The long nosed Rothschild. Are you, it jumps exactly. out. It's very jarring. We've talked about that on the show before. Yeah. But yeah, no, I share your discomfort, your anger at those anti-Semitic passages. It's just, it's yeah. really, we had another guest on the show. He was the author of the book, The Guarded Gate, and his name, Daniel Okrent. We had Daniel Okrent on the show, and he wrote mm. this fascinating book about kind of immigration policy in this time. And mm. he was like, yeah, like the anti-Semitism in this book, it would have been mother's milk to people like mm. Louisa May Alcott. It was so ingrained in her well, social And then circle. when you combine those comments with this noble German and... <laughs> <laughs> just the beautiful moral rectitude of the Germanic tradition. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a good look. It's really not. Yeah. Oof. Well, is there a lighter note we can end on? <laughs> than yeah. Let me think. What do you, yeah. What do you got? I don't know. I mean, I will say to anyone who also hates bear and wants to know the case for bear being good, I do recommend checking out the 1933 George Cukor version of the film, which maybe by of Little Women with Catherine Hepburn, which maybe by virtue of being directed by a gay man, he really pulls out the most positive qualities of bear hmm. and makes him really lovable. In this adaptation of the chapter, Professor Bear starts laying into Joe and she starts crying and he just stops and it's like, I'm so sorry. I should shut up. <laughs> Good. Mm. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I didn't hate Bear as much yeah. as you did. You know, and I think part of it, there's a really great novel that one of my old bosses recommended to me, Afternoon Men by Anthony Pohl, mm -hmm. which is like a really great depiction of just that kind of Mr. Dashwood yeah. 19th century publishing office, or I guess it's 20th century, but, and like, I really, I just, it's kind of, to me, like a cousin of the campus novel, which I also really love as yeah. a genre of just people hanging out, talking about books, <laughs> reading books about books. It's just, <laughs> it's fun. So I, it was nice to have a little moment of that. I mean, so that's yeah. one thing I would say. And then the other thing I would say by way of conclusion is just thinking <laughs> about what you were saying about, I'm really resisting making a volcano joke, <laughs> but like what you were saying about Alcott's late journals, which mm -hmm. I haven't read, but they're the inclusion of the bowel movement and <laughs> the details about that. And, you know, my grandfather was a writer and he had dementia and mm -hmm. late in his life, he kept writing, but almost like a muscle memory thing. Mm -hmm. He was a playwright and he, he would write the title page to plays and then do, it was almost like a Saul Steinberg cartoon. And he would draw uh, the weird guy and then mm -hmm. write a title and write a funny fake name for a playwright. And it was fascinating because it was, he was still writing jokes and he was still like writing plays, but mm -hmm. his mind had sort of mostly deteriorated, but he just, yeah. it was this impulse. And I kind of, when you described Alcott's persistence there, I feel mm -hmm. there's something there too. And yeah, yeah I don't know, like yeah. when I think about disability and writing, mm -hmm. I think that is a really important idea where you have this sort of core of a person, a core observer, a core thinker mm -hmm. that is at once unaffected by any physical disability, but also 
determined by it in a really powerful way. So it's shaped as a perspective, even as it kind of transcends it. And to me that as I've sort of explored disability in writing and disability art, that's such a powerful idea that I return to again and again. No, completely. I, Andrew, I cannot say enough how much I loved your book. I encourage people to check it out. It will expand. It expanded my mind. It sounds like writing it expanded your mind. It will expand your mind, plural listeners. The book is out this week because it's July 21st as of right now. Where can people find you? How can they support you and your work and buy the book? Yeah, it's called The Country of the Blind, and you can find it in bookstores. And I have a website, just my name, andrewleland.org, that mm-hmm. will probably, you know, present things that I do that I'm proud of yes. occasionally. Aside from that, you know, just plant a garden in your backyard, pet a dog, <laughs> kiss a baby, to be, yes. do good, write moral literature, write yes. immoral literature, especially <laughs> is important too. Yes. That's all I got. Be gay, do crime, all those good things. Thank you so much for being on the show, Andrew. It's been a joy having you here. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. Buy it in a package with The Country of the Blind. That's a good weekend of reading. And you can follow us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. (laughs) 